Amen. Indeed he is, is he not? And for his pleasure, we were created. You know, sometimes we can sing a song like that, a line like that, think of something like that, and get a little distressed. <laughs> like, I was created for his pleasure. Like, how much pleasure does he get out of me? Here's the deal. He gets pleasure out of us every moment of the day when we are completely overwhelmed by the chores of life. Mom, when you've just taken care of your child and you look a frazzle and you're hoping your husband doesn't come home right at that moment, at that moment, you are a pleasure to your Heavenly Father. You were created for that moment. You were created to care for those under you. You've been created for all the things that the Holy Spirit walks us through and, and to realize he gets pleasure from us being us. From us being us. How good is that? Let's bow before him, shall we? Heavenly Father, it boggles our mind. We admit it. It boggles our minds to think that we can bring you pleasure. You're the almighty God. You are sinless. We are frequently sin-filled. You are wise and we are frequently foolish. You know the end from the beginning and we don't even really understand the beginning. But Father, we've been created for your pleasure. Your Holy Spirit is working within us. He's given new life to us. And he's moving us along the path that every step of the way puts a smile on your face. You say, that was, that's part of the plan. That's part of the plan. And Father, now today, the plan has been to worship you. And I trust we've brought you pleasure as we've done so. The plan now is look into your word. And, and we want to bring you pleasure as we do so. So guide us, enable us by your Spirit to read, to understand, to be blessed by, and to learn from the Word of God. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now today, today, I am going to have us focus our attention upon a revelation that would seem to have no hope in it at all. Just turn to somebody right now and say, once you see what scriptures we're in, just say, I don't see how he gets any hope out of this. Anything to stir hope within us. A hope-generating revelation? You see, what we're going to look at today, on the surface of it, it would seem to have no hope in it at all. It's a revelation that is somewhat like this one that perhaps your mother, I know my mother gave me at times, on more, on more than one occasion, she would give a revelation to me that took the form of this. Wait till your father gets home. Just wait. Mark, you've messed up in such a way you've gone beyond my ability to handle it here, and, and you haven't really given me the respect uh, that I ought to get, and so we're not finished with this. Just wait till your father comes home. Now, on the surface of things... We would say there never was much hope in the picture that those words would put in our mind. Wait till your father gets home. Not much hope in there. 
it was more likely that our father's return would signal the end of hope. We might, in our childlike way, even hope that he wouldn't even make it home. Today's revelation contains an announcement something like that. In fact, it pictures what will actually happen when God the Father arrives and discovers the state of affairs in his home. I'm calling it Hope Generating Revelation 19. I still have the same title, you see there. It's a Hope Generating Revelation and it's the 19th one, but here's how it's titled, The Revelation of the Seven Bowls of Wrath. Try this right now. Just say to yourself, that sounds hopeful. It's the revelation of the seven bowls of God's wrath. Sounds hopeful. We find this in Revelation chapter 15, verses 5 to 8, and then the entire 16th chapter, verses 1 to 21. It's a revelation of what we could call the Father's arrival at home. Now, here's the key scripture, the one that I've just zeroed in on to begin with. It's Revelation chapter 16, the verse 1, the very first one, where someone is told to go and pour out the bowls, the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. Somebody's told that. There's an instruction given. Go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. And we will discover this morning that poured out they were or they will be. Now we're going to read the account. This is a massive passage of scripture. And we're going to read it all out loud. Remember the book of Revelation says, blessed are those who read aloud these words and take them to heart. But there's no way I can just pick out a verse here and there of this passage and give us the picture of what's going on. And so we're going to read what John wrote in those passages, beginning with Revelation chapter 15. Now, I didn't have Linda put all this on the screen. We'd be scrolling for a long time. I trust you have your own Bible in your hand. Open it up to the book of Revelation. Or open your iPad or get to the spot. Revelation chapter 15, verse 5, is where we're going to start. And you follow along. And if you can, underline some stuff that seems important. Or circle stuff that kind of seems questionable to you or puzzling to you. And, and then we'll be going through a good bit of it this morning. But here we go. Revelation chapter 15, verse 5. Prepare to be blessed as I read this out loud. After this, John says, I looked and in heaven the temple, that is the tabernacle of the testimony, was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen, and they wore golden sashes around their chests. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God. I underline that part. The wrath of God who lives forever and ever. 
and the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Now we jump to chapter 16, verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go, see, this is who told them, and this is who was told. Go, pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly and painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged, for they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was given power to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had control over these plagues. But they refused to repent and glorify him. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. Men gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores but they refused to repent of what they had done. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophets. Prophet. They are spirits of demons performing miraculous signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle of the, on the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done! Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it had ever occurred since man has been on the earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones of about a hundred pounds each fell upon men and they cursed God on account of the plague of hell because the plague was so terrible. That's the end. 
the seven bowls of God's wrath have been poured out upon the earth. Did you notice as I read through there a repeating phrase? Verse 9 we read, They cursed the name of God who had control. Verse 10, They cursed the God of heaven. Verse 21, And they cursed God. In the book of Romans, the state of fallen mankind is described this way. Romans 3.18, There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul said that's the way human beings have been all through time. They rebel against God. They go their own way. They, they have no fear of God, no respect for God, no honoring God. You see, such sinful human beings could not care less about the wishes or the commands of God. Human beings like that frequently say things like, I'm going to live my life exactly the way I want to live it. What is he going to do about it? I don't believe there is a God anyway. No fear. No respect. Certainly no obedient response. Now for most of Earth's history, sinful fallen mankind has lived with a life with no life affecting fear of God before their eyes. They don't fear God. They don't alter their life according to his wishes and his commands. There's no fear of God before their lives. eyes. They just live the way they want to live. You and I have rubbed shoulders with them our entire lives. However, here in these final days, these days that John is revealing to us, these days that have not come yet, there's a new descriptive phrase coming into play. I would suggest that no longer is there just no fear of God before their eyes. There is now a real hatred for God in their hearts. Sad to say we are seeing some of this in our country right now. Hatred toward God is always expressed as hatred toward society generally and hatred toward people specifically, as hatred toward people that are considered to be lower or unacceptable and thus unfit for companionship or fellowship or acceptance. Hatred is the ugliest of human emotion. Jesus said that hatred is what fuels the murderer, and allows him to trample on human life. Hatred is what drives the destruction of things that are valued by others. And here's the point I make today. All human hatred is ultimately directed at God. And God will only stand for so much. All human hatred is ultimately directed at God, and God will only stand for so much. John is revealing to us the response of God to the hatred of mankind in these final days. Note these two specific things revealed in this revelation of God's bowls of wrath. The first thing I find revealed there 
is the absolute rebelliousness of man. The absolute rebelliousness of man is revealed in this passage. Verse 9, they cursed the name of God who had control. Verse 9, they refused to repent and glorify him. Verse 10, they cursed the God of heaven. Verse 11, they refused to repent of what they had done. Verse 21 again, and they cursed God. Not hard to tell to call folks like that rebels. In the last days, the rebellion of man against God becomes almost absolute. As a result, these human beings will rebel against all authority. All authority. And let me say, all rebellion against authority is ultimately rebellion against God. It's ultimately directed at God. And God will only stand for so much. And so can we say as warning, based upon God's word, that figuratively and literally, all those who so rebel are playing with fire. As even the current circumstances in our own country demonstrate. All rebellion against authority is directly rebellion against God. Secondly, John would say that these, the men in this last days upon whom the bowls of wrath come, they reject all objective reality. Not only do they rebel against all authority, they actually reject what we would call objective reality. In a sense, nothing is real. Everything becomes just, that's your take on it. That's what somebody said. But there's a denial that there's any real things, real truth, objective truth, anywhere in the world. So if there is no objective truth, there surely is no truth that I need to bow my knee to. There's no truth that I say I must live by. There is no truth that I say my life should be built upon. Rejecting truth. Through my lifetime, the word of God in the United States of America has gone from being absolute truth to being a, a book of myths believed by many. The Ten Commandments, not absolute truth. Anything in the Word of God that God commands or that God prohibits, not absolute truth. Not true all time for all people in all places. And so the rejection of God's Word as absolute truth has set a snowball effect rolling. Because God's truth underlies all truth. And if you can say God's truth isn't true, and I have my own take on things, I have my own view on it, then you say, well, what is your, your view based on? What is your take coming from? Some would say science. Science is true. So I build my whole case around science. There is no God. There is no creation. There's just a a miracle of spontaneous generation, and somehow this all came into being, and, and therefore that should guide my life. Well, how does that guide my life? Well, it 
It just says, I'm an animal like every other animal. And the strongest ones win. The strongest ones win. Evolutionary theory has been part of our American culture for some time, but it's been overlaid by still biblical principles that human life is important, that human beings should be respected, that uh, things that are true should be followed, but all those things come from this word of God that has been rejected as objective reality, and in time, then the effect that God's reality has upon society weakens and weakens and weakens until finally you have people saying that there's nothing that's really true. Even science isn't true. I heard the most outrageous thing this week. Actually, I read it. A liberal professor, a professor of mathematics, but a professor who had bought into the current narrative that, that everybody is bowing the knee to actually had, I'm, I'm sure, felt the tension between the narrative of what is real and a field that she had a PhD in of mathematics, which you'd say is, you know, it's just solid as a rock. But here's what she said. She said, even 2 plus 2 equals 4 is based upon a Western European value system that is itself based in systemic racism and is therefore suspect. Now, if you're down to where 2 plus 2 equals 4 is suspect, think of all the other more complicated things that you'd have to say, well, I'm throwing that out, I'm throwing that out. There's nothing that's really real. There's nothing that I can base my life on. It's just what I want and what I choose and what I say. And when you get all the way down to where God's wrath is about ready to fall upon mankind, there is no objective reality being accepted at all. Word of God, of course, is not true. But even the standards of our society, the, the the principles by which we would live and by which people need to follow to, to function together, they're all false too. They're all built upon some sandy soil. And it's part of the absolute rebelliousness of men. And what we're seeing and what we're moving toward and what will ultimately be experienced in the end of days is what the Apostle Paul shared in Romans chapter 1, verse 31, when he was looking back at a time when God just let man loose, took his hand of restraint off of man, just let man be turned over to what the Scripture calls a depraved mind, a depraved lifestyle. And Paul said they became this. They became senseless. Can't even think straight. Their whole world is just nonsense. They become faithless. They're committed to nothing. There's nothing that they had their faith put in, and there's nothing that they are being faithful to. They are faithless. They are heartless. Untouched by any feeling of human emotion other than anger and hatred. 
no warmth, no love for others, no connection that, that is based upon all people being created in the image of God and therefore having great value. No, nothing stirs their heart. Their heart's pretty dead. They're senseless. They're faithless. They're heartless. And then, the last thing, they are ruthless. There is absolutely no standard of morality or decency that they will allow to, con allow to control their behavior. Whatever it takes is their philosophy of life. That's what happens. That's what will happen again in fullness before God just pours out his wrath upon a world that had become so corrupt. Probably before the flood, men were like that. What an indictment. What a predicament to be in. And John, as he looks down through time, and we're still looking through time, it hasn't come yet, though we may be experiencing the foretaste of it. He reveals the absolute rebelliousness of men in their heart. Their human flesh desires independence from everything. Well, here's the second thing that's revealed in this revolution, revelation. The absolute righteousness of God is revealed. Remember what I read? John says, Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters saying, You are just in these judgments. You are just in these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged, for they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. They shed the blood of others. You've turned the very waters of this earth into blood. And that's all they have to drink. And John says, and I heard the altar respond. When I read that, did you wonder about that? How does an altar respond? The altar in the temple responded. Remember earlier on, John said, I saw under the altar of God in heaven the souls of those who had been beheaded for their faith, the martyrs. And back then, the martyrs under the throne had said, how long, O Lord, how long, O Lord, until we are avenged? Well, I believe when John says, I heard the altar respond, it was the souls of the martyrs under the altar making yet another statement. And they say, yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. God's judgment is according to truth and holiness. God's final judgment is absent mercy and grace. There's no grace. There's no mercy when these bowls of wrath begin to be poured out. Think of the days of Noah. How many people might have clutched at the door of that ark once it was shut and the rain began to fall? Think of the days of Sodom and Gomorrah when fire came down out of heaven and destroyed them. Think of the city of Jericho where the walls fell down and God said, except for Rahab and her family, destroy every living thing there. 
because judgment had come. Think of the Canaanite nations where God says the cup of the iniquity of the Canaanites is full and he sent the Israelites into the land to be his agents of judgment. In these last days, no one will be singing amazing grace. When the bowls of God's wrath begin to be poured out, grace is absent. The age of grace will be over. The day of God's patience will be over. And to those who watch from heaven, the outpouring of God's wrath and judgment will be as wondrous a thing, as awesome a thing, as any of his wondrous works of salvation. This is the almighty God at work in the world. This is the almighty judge of the universe saying it is time for judgment to fall. Like watching the mesmerizing detonation of a massive volcanic eruption and the subsequent flow of fiery lava that destroys everything in its path. So it will be for all the heavenly beings and redeemed human beings who see these things play out upon this earth. They will see the Almighty God erupt in righteous judgment upon the sinful, rebellious human beings remaining on this planet. It will be astonishing, breathtaking. It will have its own form of glory and greatness. They will marvel even as they rejoice in their own personal deliverance. That's coming. That's coming. We don't know how far from it we are. If I understand God's word right, we will be watching from heaven when these things happen. We, the church of Jesus Christ, will be caught out of this earth in the rapture when Christ returns. The tribulation saints will be caught up when, when Jesus takes that sickle and he harvests the earth of all the good that remains and has been brought together. And then, and then we will see God as God. And because we're watching from the heavenly view, we will not view it as fallen sinful men. We will not be standing there saying, oh, that's terrible. God shouldn't do stuff like that. We will see with a holy perspective. We will see with the, the knowledge and the plan of God having sunk into our minds and we will see. We will see the awesomeness of a righteous God acting righteously and bringing about judgment upon this earth. Now, what's the hope in that? What's the hope in that? Here's our last little box. It says this, today's revelation generated hope. Hope that comes out of this revelation? Well, here we go. Let me share it this way. God does not overlook or ignore or forget about the evilness in this world. God does not. God never overlooks the things that happen to his own children, the horrible, sinful things that are done to them, the things that happen to, to 
what we would say innocent individuals in this world today. Those who are killed by stray bullets from angry people. God does not overlook or ignore or forget about the evilness in this world and particularly those who, who set themselves against him, who curse his name, who hate the fact that he exists. Secondly, our Heavenly Father does possess full and complete knowledge. And he will one day express full and complete judgment upon sinful mankind. And he will vindicate his own. And when he does, it will be glorious in their eyes. The martyrs who said, how long? How long? And he said, until the full number to all your brothers who are going to be slain by the sword are, are added to your number, but there will come a time. There will come a time when God will call everything into account. And evil will be dealt with and it will seem to be right. And righteousness will be honored and it will be seen to be right. And God, our Heavenly Father, can be trusted. God, your Heavenly Father, can be trusted. If you have not entrusted yourself to Him yet, do so. Do so. Let the Holy Spirit stir in your heart and bring you to a, an understanding of the righteousness and holiness and majesty of the Creator God. Don't mess around with that truth. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. This book says there, there's coming a day when God will rouse himself as the just judge. He's already judged his son for your sins. Don't put yourself in a place where you're judged for them yourself. Claim Jesus Christ as your Savior. Claim his death as, as taking your place and yield your life to the righteous, holy, loving, marvelous Heavenly Father and let him change you and develop you and make you something that truly brings him pleasure. See that? So that the day will come when he can vindicate you. The greatest vindication is just to let you stand in the face of all the celestial beings and say, this is my child. This is my son. This is my daughter in whom I'm well pleased. That's the vindication. He identifies you as his. And it'll be a glorious moment. Our final thought is perhaps the most sobering one I've ever written, but it just says this, when grace departs. When grace departs, only judgment remains. We today are still in the age of grace. 
Grace that's greater than all our sin. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. If you've not responded to it yet, if you have in the past and you've gotten lax, oh, embrace the grace of God. Give yourself to Him. Experience His loving favor and learn from the revelation, the prophecy of things yet to come. Learn from that and share what you know with everybody you know. Our Heavenly Father, once again, we marvel that we have this book of Revelation. The Apostle Paul never read it. The Apostle Peter never read it. The Lord Jesus himself felt that his church, some 30 years or 60 years after he returned to heaven, Jesus felt his church on this earth, peopled with those who had never seen him in the flesh needed to know these things. We, so many years later, need to know these things, for they are true things, and they will happen. Father, we need to be sure that your message goes through the world, that we, we who see just the foretaste of some of this ugliness in our world today, that we are balanced enough, that we are biblically informed enough to say that's how mankind is apart from the goodness and grace of God. That's how mankind is when his heart is, has no fear of God in it and is even developing a hostility towards God. Oh, Father, I pray that by by your Holy Spirit, there would be some of the most outspoken of these radical leaders who hear the call of God, who repent of the perspective they hold and would adopt the truth of God for what it is. Father, may there be testimonies of Jesus Christ triumphing over the sinfulness of men that will emerge in our days, that the Spirit of God makes his name the name to be cherished and accepted. And may our country, may our country once again have a delay in its eventual demise. For we ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen.